really hope we can get uh, some participants in. As a matter of fact, we only have a limited number of spaces. And uh, these discipleship groups will be, whoa, there it is, um, will be looking at uh, the spiritual disciplines and we'll be looking at um, studying the Bible devotionally as well as uh, the disciplines such as fasting, worship, solitude, and all of the rest. And so uh, we hope that you will uh, come and sign up in the campus pastor's office. We have applications there. As I say, we're only able to take a limited number this semester. But we want to encourage you uh, that in the fall we will have many more groups available. And so that is coming, and we uh, look forward to that. Uh, Our applications are available now, and come in and sign up. Thank you. Well, if you have your, if I have, if I have, if I have, if I have a mic, okay, we're getting a mic now, okay, good. If you have Bibles with you, you might want to turn to the third chapter of Exodus, and I hear a rustle, there are some, and uh, we're picking up where we left off last week, 400 years later, which is really not picking up where we left off, except the Bible leaves off with Joseph. And uh, he and his family are welcome guests uh, in Egypt. Well, sort of welcome. They're shepherds. Uh, Egyptians don't like shepherds. They smell bad. They think their job is a lower-class job. So they, they get good pasture lands, but they're segregated, uh, which even in God's providence, that's a good thing. The, uh, r- the racism, you might call it, of the Egyptians serves to keep God's people together and, and relatively, well, unaffected or unpolluted by... Egyptian religion, but it's all relative. But nevertheless, they've been there four centuries. They're not welcome guests anymore. They're slaves. And now we pick up the next chapter of the story. Verse 1, chapter 3, the book of Exodus. One day Moses was tending the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he went deep into the wilderness near Sinai, the mountain of God. Suddenly, the angel of the Lord appeared to him as a blazing fire in a bush. And Moses was amazed because the bush was engulfed in flames, but it didn't burn up. Amazing, Moses said to himself. Why isn't that bush burning up? I must go over to see this. When the Lord saw that he had caught Moses' attention, God called to him from the bush, Moses, Moses, here I am, Moses replied. Do not come any closer, God told him. Take off your sandals, for you are standing on holy ground. And then he said, I am the God of your ancestors, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. When Moses heard this, he hid his face in his hands because he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord told him, You can be sure that I have seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard their cries for deliverance from their harsh slave drivers. Yes, I'm aware of their suffering, so I have come to rescue them from the Egyptians and lead them out of Egypt into their own good and spacious land. The cries of the people of Israel have reached me, and now I have seen how the Egyptians have oppressed them with heavy tasks. Now go, for I'm sending you to Pharaoh. You will lead my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. But who am I to appear before Pharaoh, 
Moses asked God, how can you expect me to lead the Israelites out of Egypt? Well, the question, who am I, has become one of the most tiresome questions of our times. And by the time Moses finishes asking it of God four or five different ways in a conversation that spans two chapters in Exodus, God himself has just about had it with that question. First, Moses asks it outright. God says, Moses, I'm going to send you to rescue my people from slavery. Moses says, who am I to do that? How can you expect me to do that? God says, well, I'll be with you. That's not enough for Moses. Moses says, well, now, okay, okay, okay. So I go, and they ask me who sent me, and, well, what am I supposed to say? And God replied, I am the one who always is. Just tell them that. I am has sent me to you. Thank you, God. That really clears things up. But Moses says, all right, I'll say that, but, but what if they say to me, well, you just made that up. We don't believe you really saw this uh, I am who I am, who always was. What do I say then? What if they say I'm lying? God said, well, try this. See that staff in your hand? Throw it on the ground. Moses throws it on the ground and turns into a snake. Moses jumps back as any sane human being would. And God says, now grab it by the tail. And he reaches over and grabs the snake by the tail. The snake turns back into the staff. God says, do that if they don't believe what you're saying. Or try this. Stick your hand in your cloak and pull it out again. Now Moses does that. Hand comes out full of leprosy. God says, stick it back in your cloak again. He sticks it back, pulls it out. It's okay. God says, try the staff, try the hand, and if that doesn't work, by the way, I'm paraphrasing the next chapter of Exodus, go down to the Nile and, and get a big jug of water and pour it out on the sand, and it'll come out blood. If they don't believe you, do those things. And I love what Moses says. Lord, I'm just, this is chapter 4 now, verse 10, I'm just not a good speaker. I never have been, and I'm not now, even after you've spoken to me. I'm clumsy with words. I love that. He says, God, I, I'm not a good speaker, and since you've been talking to me, I don't feel myself getting any better. And God says, who makes mouths? Who makes people so they can speak or not speak? hear or not hear, see or not see, is it not I, the Lord? Now go and do as I have told you. I will help you speak well, and I will tell you what to say. But Moses again pleaded, Lord, please send someone else. And of course, that was behind the first question, who am I? Whoever it is, I don't want it to be me. Send someone else. And then the Lord became angry with Moses. All right, he said. What about your brother Aaron, the Levite? He's a good speaker, and look, he's on his way to meet you now, and when he sees you, he will be very glad. You'll talk to him, giving him the words to say, I'll help both of you to speak clearly, and I will tell you what to do. Now, go. End of story.
at least for my part, this morning. The best little book I ever read on how to read the Bible was a book by Soren Kierkegaard entitled For Self-Examination. And Kierkegaard picked up on the advice that James gives us about reading the Bible. He says the Bible's like a mirror. So when you go read the Bible, you're supposed to, uh, well, like a mirror, you're supposed to see the face in the mirror. And so Kierkegaard said, whenever you read the Bible, you're supposed to say over and over to yourself, this is written to me, and this is written about me. And I think as far as that goes, it's good advice. The Bible is written to us. It is written about us, and it's written about God. And so what I want to ask this morning is, what does this story tell us about ourselves? And what does it tell us about God? Two things about each, I think. First, ourselves. The story tells us that you and I, if indeed the Bible's a mirror, if we're supposed to find ourselves in it, that you and I believe more in what we believe to be true about ourselves than what we believe to be true about God. I'll say that again. If we're like Moses, and I think we are, we tend to believe more in what we believe to be true about us than what we believe to be true about God. God has just made a series of remarkable assertions to Moses. He said, look, I'll be with you. I'll, I'll give you signs and wonders. You can do incredible things. I'll even give you a mouthpiece. Aaron. But that's not enough for Moses. It doesn't sink in. Because why? He believes in what he believes to be true about Moses more than what he believes to be true about God. And we're told to believe in ourselves supposed to be a good thing, and it often is, but uh, well, I like what G.K. Chesterton said about people who believe in themselves. You want to go to a place where you find people who have absolutely unshakable convictions about themselves? Go to a mental hospital. They have fixed beliefs about themselves. It's not necessarily a good thing to believe in yourself, especially if what you believe to be true about yourself is more true to you and what you believe to be true about God. Have I said it enough to get the point across here? Let me come at it from another angle. Medieval theologians uh, came up with a list of sins they called the seven deadly sins. First deadly sin was pride. Hubris. It's, uh, it's making yourself more than God or trying to be like God. That's what, that was what was behind the sin of Adam and Eve, according to Augustine and others, and I think they're right. Pride is rising above yourself, above God. And then following pride are things like gluttony and lust and murder and lying. But the last one on the list, usually the one that bookended it, was the sin of sloth. The sin of sloth was a sin of losing all sense of motivation in life, just sort of despairing and sinking into depression and, and, and not believing you could do a thing. Both ends of the sin list are refusals to be who God made you to be. In one, you rise above God, at least in your mind, and the other, you sink beneath humanity, at least in your own mind. Both are bad. Both are believing more in what you believe to be true about yourself than what you believe to be true about God. Try this one. And I've done this, as I'm sure many of you have done. Have you ever said, when you've done something really wrong and you've asked God to forgive you, have you heard someone say this? Have you said it? I've said it. Something like, well, I know God forgives me. 
but I just can't forgive myself. That is a terrible thing to say. So when we say something like that, we're saying that my opinion about myself somehow carries more weight than God's opinion about myself. And in fact, it's the same thing that got you in trouble in the first place. What do we do when we sin but think more of ourselves than we think of God? And when we feel God's forgiveness, say, well, God, I'm glad you can do that because that's what you do. I like what Voltaire said about God. He said, I love to sin. God loves to forgive. It's a marvelous arrangement. But then we got to carry around this guilt thing like, oh, yeah, I know, but I, I just can't let go. I was so bad. I mean, I know God did it, but I have higher standards. Well, that's what Moses is doing here. Believing more in what he believes about Moses than what he believes about God. Secondly, still talking about us, truth be told, we would rather be tending sheep in Midian than freeing the slaves in Egypt. Now, Moses has been there 40 years. He didn't want to start off there. Uh, things kind of went south for him when he was in Egypt before. He, his plans didn't work out. He goes off. He's a shepherd. He's off in Midian, in the middle of the desert. And the truth be told now, after 40 years of this, well, it's a little bit more... I mean, he doesn't like Midian. But doggone, it's, it's known. It's comfortable. It's what I'm used to. It's very human. You might hate a relationship you're in. You might hate what you're doing. But at least you know. You're used to it. It's... It's something you're, you're sort of in a groove on. And as someone said, the only difference between ruts and graves are in their dimensions. Tending sheep instead of freeing slaves. If I can refer to J.K. Chesterton again, he was at a dinner party and was asked by the host, uh, it was sort of a discussion question, you know, to get people talking to one another. And uh, the question was, if you were on a desert island and you couldn't, uh, you could only take one book with you, what would you take? Of course, these are all uh, literati, and they, they were saying things like, well, the, the Bible, King James Version, of course, or uh, Shakespeare, or whatever, you know. Came to Chesterton, they said, now, what, what's the one book you would take with you on a desert island? He said, I would take with me Thomas's Guide to Practical Shipbuilding. Well, we want to settle in. We get, we get kind of overwhelmed with what we think has to be the case. We'd rather be tending sheep in Midian than freeing slaves in Egypt. But listen, if you answer the call of God on your life, it will mean discomfort and change. You'll find yourself going places you never thought you'd go before and doing things you never thought you could possibly do. Because that's the God we serve. When I first heard God's call in my life to go into the ministry, I had a very clear picture of what it was. It involved a place and some people, a certain income, and God has given me none of those things. Not one single one. But I, I want to be where I am. And you know, Moses, Moses would one day sit on top of Mount Nebo dying and look at the promised land and he would thank God that God deprived him of his peace 
to give him glory. It's not too late to think about this, you guys. Where do you want to be when you die? And what do you want to look back on? Do you want to say, I, I played the easy way, I took the safe path, I tended sheep, good, it's good work. I mean, someone needs to tend sheep. Or I heard God's call for something higher and better and more dangerous and thrilling and stretching and uncomfortable than I could have ever come up with myself. Well, that's us, I think, as I hold the mirror up on this story. We tend to believe more in our convictions about ourselves, and we believe in God, and we, we tend to want to stay close to home. What about God? Well, two things about God here, too, I think. Number one, it tells us that God is more than sufficient. He is more than enough for us to do what we have to do. You notice how God doesn't answer Moses' question, who am I? God doesn't try to build up Moses' self-esteem and say, Moses, you're really a terrific guy. You've got potential you don't know about. Let me talk to you about you. That's how a lot of my prayers are with God. You know, I, I, say, I get done, I basically say, God, that's enough of me talking about me, now you talk about me. <laughs> no, God doesn't answer Moses' question, who am I to do this? God instead does two things. He gives him a promise. He says, I will be with you. And if the promise doesn't hold water, let me tell you my name. We'll get back to that obscure-sounding name to us. It's the Hebrew verb, to be. And Hebrews want to make a point. When they want to deliver certainty here, they do it by redundancy, by repetition. God says, I am who I am, or it can be translated, you can check this in your, your margin notes in your Bible. It was, I will be who I will be. The point is, I will be with you because my name is, I will be with you. I'm here, and I always will be here. And do we believe that? Do we believe that God is all we need? He's sufficient for the thing he's calling us to do. Now again, maybe you're, you're still stuck back on the call part. You say, I don't have a clue what it is. Let me suggest something to you here. You may not know what the call is until you first are convinced that God will be enough whatever the call is. Capiche? Make sense? He's enough. I love the, uh, the phrase that, the, uh, that Bob Cook, the uh, founder of World Vision, used. He said, whatever is truly Christian always has to have God room in it. And if you know the life of this man, he was, uh, he was wildly eccentric. He did all kinds of crazy things. But for him, God room was... It was a space between what, what he could do by himself and what only God could do. There was always this big gap in Cook's projects. God room, space between what he was capable of and what could only happen if God did it. If God is sufficient, there ought to be God room. Follow me? And the things we attempt for God when we hear his call. We should always be just a little bit out on the edge out of our comfort zone. Like the night I was ordained, I love to tell this story. If you're here for four years, you'll probably hear it once or twice, maybe three times. May 1974, La Jolla, California. Warm, muggy night, Presbyterian church. That means black robes. Sorry, Stan, I hate to put those things on. 
got to do it this Saturday, I know. But uh, big black clerical robe, and came time for the laying on of hands. The elders would lay hands on, and uh, I had to kneel in the carpet. I don't kneel when I pray usually because I get leg cramps. I got bony knees from old football injuries, and so I'm kneeling in this rather thin Presbyterian carpet. And all the elders gather around me, and they lay their hands on me. And you know, it, it's not a lot just to put you know, two pairs of hands on somebody. That's, that's kind of light. But you get like 15 pairs of hands on your shoulders, and it gets really heavy. And I'm sweating. I, I'm, it's, I'm ugly when I sweat, or uglier when I sweat. Anyway, it just, it, it just comes out of me. And I'm sweating, and my knees are digging into the carpet, and those hands are heavy. And it's like everybody in that lousy ordination council had to say a prayer over me. And I was, I was on the verge of saying, I've got to stand up. I can't do this. When the final prayer came, the pastor, he said, Lord, even as Ben feels the weight of our hands on his shoulders. Yeah, I got that. I got that. May he also feel the weight of responsibility he has as your servant. I really had that part. But then he said, May he also feel the strength of your everlasting arms holding him up. And I've been figuring that out in the nearly 30 years since I was ordained. Do you know what I feel half the time when I walk up in front of you guys? Felt it this morning, big time. What am I doing here? I mean, who do I think I am to get up and talk to you about God, to tell you what God thinks? I mean, what presumption is that, that I would get up and say, will you listen while I read the Bible and you hear the Word of God? It's crazy unless God calls me to do it. Remember Peter? When he realized who Jesus was, he said, Lord, depart from me. I'm a sinful man. Still feel that. I hope I never stop. God is more than sufficient. However, that's our God. And the second thing this story tells us about God is that only He knows who we are. Only He knows who we are. I said Bob Cook about world vision. I meant Bob Pierce, excuse me. Would God call you to do something Would God call you to do something that he hadn't equipped you to do? That's a theoretical question, but again, I think truth be told, a lot of us think, well, you know, he might. He might just give me something to do that's going to make me look stupid and foolish. No. When God calls his prophets, he said, before you were born, I knew you. I shaped you in the womb. And I'm going to quote a psalm to you at the end of this message which says that over and over and over again. God knows who you are. Don't go looking for yourself by looking for yourself. You'll find yourself to be an onion. Just peel off the layers, get down to the bottom, you'll be nothing. No, you want to find out who you are? Do the will of of the God who knows who you are. That's where you find it. Well, 
I want to close with two things. I want to give you some suggestions about hearing God's call. And I'm going to close with a great psalm about the God who knows us and who gives us everything we need. But first of all, how do you know what God is calling you to do? Number one, do what you know now God wants you to do. Start there. I have a lot of these kind of conversations. And people come and say, Ben, I don't know what I'm supposed to do. I say, yes, you do. No, I don't. That's why I'm talking to you. No, yes, you do. You know what God's want. No, I, I don't know what my career is supposed to be. I don't know about marriage. Fine. You don't know that, but what do you know? It's in here. And if God can trust you to obey what you know to be true already, you don't have to worry about the stuff you don't yet know. You want to know God's will for your life? Start today. Start living and acting like a follower of Jesus Christ. That'll open the door for the rest. Number two, pray about it. I have. Try this prayer over and over again. This one rips my heart out every time I pray it. Not my will, but your will. Now, I know that prayer. No, you don't. I don't know it either. Sometimes I have to say, Lord, help me to want to want to do your will. Sometimes I have to say, Lord, help me to want to want to want to do your will. I mean, I get so far removed from really meaning that prayer. Let me tell you, if you say to God with a full heart, I'll do what you want because I believe... You know me better than I know myself. And you'll show me who I am. As I obey you, he'll show you. Number three, take some risks. Try some things out. And one of the things I love about Westmont College is the uh, way you students take initiatives. Go out and do things. It drives me crazy sometimes. I say, whoa, 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 what's what you're doing? <laughs> you go out and have uh, outreaches and service projects. You, 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 you guys are nuts. You do this stuff. Keep doing it. You know the old saying about will, the will of God? You, know, you can't steer a boat that's not moving. Well, try things. Risk things. Fourthly and finally, this has meant so much to me. Ask God to give you an errand, or two, or three. Finally, when God gets, gets Moses boiled down to the core of it, Moses says, I don't want to go, and God says, that's okay. Well, it's not okay, but you got, I'm going to, okay, that's what you say, but you've got to go anyway, but I'll give you Aaron to go with you. And later on, Aaron plays such huge roles like in this big battle that they're having, and Moses is up there holding his hands up in prayer, and his arms get weak, and Aaron and a friend, Her, H-U-R, not H-E-R, they hold his arms up. My point is, and I believe God will always answer this prayer the way it's prayed, ask God to give you somebody or some bodies to be with you in this, to walk with you in this, and God will get his way. Well, more important than that, though, is the God who calls. And I want you to listen now as I close with just this wonderful psalm about God's sufficiency, 
his knowledge of you and me. Psalm 139. Again, I urge you to maybe close your eyes or whatever. Just hear about the God who calls. O Lord, you have examined my heart and know everything about me. You know when I sit down or stand up, you know my thoughts when far away. You chart the path ahead of me and tell me where to stop and rest. Every moment you know where I am. You know what I'm going to say, even before I say it, Lord. You both proceed and follow me. You place your hand of blessing on my head. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too great for me to know. I can never escape from your spirit. I can never get away from your presence. If I go up to heaven, you're there. If I go down to the place of the dead, you're there. If I ride on the wings of the morning, if I dwell on the farthest oceans, even there, your hand will guide me and your strength will support me. I could ask the darkness to surround me and the light around me to become like night. But even in the darkness, I cannot hide from you. For to you, the night is as bright as day. Darkness and light are both alike to you. You made all the delicate inner parts of my body and knit me together in my mother's womb. Thank you for making me so wonderfully complex. Your workmanship is marvelous, and how well I know it. You watched me as I was being formed in utter seclusion, as I was woven together in the dark of the womb. You saw me before I was born. Every day of my life was recorded in your book. Every moment was laid out before a single day had passed. How precious are your thoughts about me, O God. They're innumerable. I can't even count them. They outnumber the grains of sand. And when I wake up in the morning, you're still with me. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my thoughts. Point out anything in me that offends you. And lead me along the path of everlasting life. And Lord, we believe that. Help us when we don't. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. You are dismissed.